every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for Thursday, the 25th of January, 2024. This is the show that brings you discussion and analysis on some of the top breaking business and finance stories from across Asia. And this podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, former President Donald Trump confirmed his status as the frontrunner for the Republican presidential nomination after decisively winning the New Hampshire primary. With 97% of the vote counted, he beat Nikki Haley, his last remaining rival in the Republican nomination race, by 11 points, with a vote share of 54.4%. China pledged Wednesday to reduce the amount of liquidity that its banks are required to hold as reserves early next month in its bid to boost its struggling economy. The reserve requirement ratio for financial institutions will be cut by 50 basis points to 10% from February the 5th, which will provide 1 trillion yuan in long-term capital. The PBOC also said Wednesday there's room for further monetary policy easing. Chinese authorities are tightening limits on capital outflows by restricting access to funds that invest in offshore securities as the country battles a stock market route. About a third of Chinese funds that invest in foreign securities have announced in stock exchange notices that they have suspended or capped sales to retail investors. The brokerages said regulators had in particular requested the suspension of transactions involving ETFs that sought to match the performance of the MSCI USA 50, the NASDAQ 100 and Japan's Nikkei 225 indices. Measures of activity in the U.S. manufacturing and services sector unexpectedly rose in January. The services PMI jumped to a seven-month high of 52.9, surpassing market expectations of 51. The manufacturing PMI unexpectedly rose to 50.3 from 47.9 in December, compared to forecasts of 47.9. The reading was the highest since October 2022. New business expanded for the third consecutive month at the sharpest pace since June. On today's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Louisa Fock, China Equity Strategist at Bank of Singapore. And with a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Director of Research at Cyrus Consulting in Taipei. I do appreciate reading your questions and comments on the show, so if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Wall Street's Wednesday, US stocks rose as Netflix led a rally among technology names, pushing the broader market to new highs. The S&P 500 climbed 0.1% to 4,869, clinching a new all-time closing record. The Dow closed 99 points lower, or a third of a percent, at 37,806, hurt by declines in Verizon and 3M a day after each reported earnings. The technology-heavy Nasdaq Composite advanced 0.4% to 15,482. The Nasdaq 100 outperformed, rising 0.6% to a new record high. Netflix shares surged 10.7% after the streamer said its total subscriber count hit an all-time high of 268.8 million. 
After the closing bell, Tesla said sales growth for its electric vehicles would be notably lower this year than in 2023. The US car manufacturer reported a 3% rise in revenue to $25.2 billion, marking its slowest pace of growth in more than three years and coming in below analysts' expectations as concerns about stalling global demand for electric vehicles and price cuts dented performance. Shares of Tesla fell 2.5% in after-hours trading. Treasury yields, which had been lower early in the day, jumped following the US PMI data. The 10-year yield rallied four basis points to a four-week high of 4.18%. The US dollar index cut some losses to settle 0.2% lower, around 103.3 on Wednesday, after falling to as low as 102.77 earlier in the session. The dollar fell half a percent against the Japanese currency to 147.59 yen. The dollar was a third of a percent weak against the yuan at 7.1515 renminbi in Shanghai. Gold fell 0.8% to around $2,012 an ounce on Wednesday as investors reacted to stronger than expected US PMI data. And the Brent crude oil contract for March was up 0.6% at $80.04 a barrel. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index surged 546 points Wednesday. That's 3.6% to 15,900, taking its rebound since hitting a 15-month low on Monday to 6.3%. The Hang Seng Tech Index gained 4.2%, boosted by shares of Alibaba, which jumped 7.3% after the New York Times reported that founder Jack Ma and Alibaba chairman Joe Tai have both been buying up shares in the company in recent months as the stock plunged. The Shanghai Composite jumped 1.8% to 2,821, rebounding from the lowest level since March 2020, which was hit on Monday and reducing its losses for the year to 5.2%. Futures markets projecting that the rebound in Hong Kong is going to extend into a third day. Uh, Looks like the Hang Seng is going to be up about 180 points or so at the open. That's around 1.1%, starting the day at 16,080. And you can get more details on the latest market movement in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Much to talk about on this Thursday morning, so let's welcome our guests. We have with us Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning, Andrew. Good morning. Good morning, Peter. And also with us, Louisa Fock, who is China Equity Strategist at the Bank of Singapore in Hong Kong. Morning, Louisa. Morning, Peter. China pledged Wednesday to reduce the amount of liquidity that its banks are required to hold as reserves early next month. The triple R, which is the reserve requirement ratio for financial institutions, is going to be cut by 50 basis points to 10% from February the 5th. That'll provide a trillion yuan in long-term liquidity. That's about 140 billion US dollars. And this is going to be the lowest triple R level now since March 2007. It's also the first cut in the triple R this year, following two cuts last year. And additionally, starting January the 25th, the PBOC will lower relending and rediscount interest rates by 25 basis points, which is going to target small businesses. And they've also broadened the use of commercial property loans for developers to help them pay off other debt. And the PBOC also said Wednesday there's room for further monetary policy easing. Andrew, let's get your thoughts first of all um, on this. Is this related to the stock market sell-off that we've been seeing this week? 
Uh, well, sell off or buy up, you mean? Uh, we, we have to make up our mind, Peter. <laughs> well, sell off, in, uh, sell off initially, buy up for two days. <laughs> well, yeah. one, has to be, one has to be merciful. Sorry, one has to be very grateful for small mercies. Um, answer. It's very typical of PBOC to prefer to play with the quantity rather than the price. Remember, central banks can only really control quantity or price, not both. The PBOC prefers to increase quantity on the expectation that this is going to lower interest rates through a market movement, as opposed to cutting interest rates, although they do that also every now and then when it's suitable. Now, the, the good news is, yes, yes, a lot more liquidity in the market. The not so good news is, is whether the banks are willing to lend it and where they are willing to lend it, and also if they are willing to lend it, if they're going to find borrowers, uh, even if the interest rates are, are, are decreased. In other words, I'm never very sure when we are having a major problem with balance sheet issues. In other words, the property sector has borrowed a lot more than it can finance if effectively you're telling them, please come and borrow a little bit more. It's, it just doesn't make any sense. The other part is, of course, this is whether the banks will direct this to consumer spending. Uh, and by a combination of both making it easier and cheaper, uh, this will entice consumers to borrow more. In other words, I am not a great believer in quantitative easing, in other words, lowering, sorry, increasing the amount available when, in fact, what you want is clearing up balance sheets and not people borrowing more. Mm. All right, Louisa, let me get your thoughts here. This is obviously part of a package of measures that we've seen announced over the last couple of days since the stock market really has uh, has plummeted um, at the beginning of this year. It's caused a rebound for the last two days or so. Let me get your thoughts, first of all, on the overall measures that have been announced. Are they going to work? Are they? Are we going to see anything more than just a short-term bounce in the, uh, in the Hang Seng and the Chinese mainland indices? Um, thank you, Peter. Um, put it this way, on the reserve requirement ratio cut and all sorts of C-rates that uh, we've just mentioned, I think the timing and the magnitude uh, come in slightly um, um, a little bit earlier than expected. And in terms of size, uh, a modest uh, surprise to us. Um, before that, we would have um, uh, expected a policy vacuum from now uh, to the National People Congress. Um, so I think from this perspective, it would be a modest surprise to us. But going back to your question, whether this alone will help, uh, we are still of the view that um, the major issues uh, that uh, currently we're facing is China is in transition in a sense that um, it's trying to deflate the property sector. So this is one of the key indicators that we are mo closely monitoring how the property transaction data is going in terms of transition volume and prices, because it will then um, have an impact in overall um uh, consumer market because if you look at Chinese household, uh, around 60% of the household's wealth are, are related to property. So if we don't see any signs of stabilization, it will have um, a wealth impact or wealth impact in terms of the consumption where the government is trying to boost. Um, secondly, um, I think the other issues that we are looking into is uh, we do see that corporate earnings is still too optimistic. As of yesterday, I think the market is still looking at 
around more than 30% year-on-year growth in terms of corporate earnings uh, uh, in 2024. Uh, we think as we are getting into the result season, um, that will be higher risk of earnings downward pressure. And our base case forecast 7 to 8% earnings growth. That's mean there's still a little bit way to work there if our mm. base case panel uh, materialize. And lastly, um, I think um, we probably need uh, more holistic uh, measures or packages in addressing some of the uh, fundamental issues aside from real estate that we just briefly mentioned, but also in terms of local government debt restructuring. And also, like how to boost the investor and consumer confidence. Yeah. So, what is the problem that this triple R cut is supposed to fix? Is it the, the uh, uh, according to the authorities in Beijing? Is it the stock market slide? Is it the the weak economy? Is it the property sector? Is it is it all of them? What do they hope to fix with this triple R cut? I think the triple R cut, together with the lots of comments that you have mentioned that basically will help the banks to lower their funding cost. And in, in that, there is um, potential for the lending rate cuts ahead. So in a nutshell, it will lower the funding cost for a lot of the corporates. Yes, whether there will be loan demand is another side of the equation or the other side of the coin. But then, as we all remember, as we are approaching Chinese New Year, liquidity usually will be a bit tight. So there will be some liquidity injections. Um, so I think what they've done um, probably uh, slightly uh, larger or, or give us a modest surprise on this front. Yeah. Okay. Um, Andrew, the other aspect of all of this that's that's been announced this week is this stock market stabilisation fund, although we haven't seen uh, yet too much details about it, although it's supposed to be coming from the offshore uh, funds of, of state-owned enterprises sitting here in Hong Kong, which are then going to be used to buy uh, mainland shares. What do you make of that? Well, it, uh, I'm still working through it, both in terms of technicals and simply in terms of metaphysics. Well, it is a classical case of uh, robbing Peter to pay Paul in the sense that if the matter, if the money is withdrawn from Hong Kong shares, okay, then of course that's that's not <laughs> going to help the yeah. index. And if they are asked to put the money in the Chinese shares, the question is: is why was the money in the first place in Hong Kong shares and not in Chinese shares? What was the problem with Chinese shares? The answer is: is well. Possibly the overall performance was was uh, was not as good, but mind you, having invested in the Hansen Index, which has been the worst performing index in Asia in the last year, possibly in the last two or three mm. years, might have come as a relief to the funds that they are now effectively are forced to to take the money back home. Mm. But in, in a sense, it adds to funding in the Chinese in their own. Uh, sorry, in their onboard, in their online uh, Chinese equity market whilst withdrawing it from Hong Kong. So I'm, I'm still thinking about this, but uh, looking at it from the purely Trumpian point of view, in other words, what really matters is what happens in China, not anywhere else. And yeah, presumably this is a good thing 
as far as the equity market in China is concerned, but not one in Hong Kong. Mm. It, it's not clear even that this money is necessarily invested in Hong Kong equities, is it? It says it comes from the offshore accounts of Chinese yeah. state-owned enterprises. Um, so right. it could be money yeah. that's sitting here in Hong Kong. But of course, that raises the issue that, you know, these are public companies um, and it seems to be that their funds are being used more as, as if, um, you know, they're there to support the government on the, on the mainland. So it seems to be almost like a a repossession of the profits of these companies. Well, yes, and also in a crude sense, if uh, the Chinese authorities were thinking of putting in more money, of course, there is only always one way of putting in more money in the stock market by borrowing. Mm. And I think they'd rather be seen dead than issue a a trillion of uh, UN bonds and then promptly use the money to buy stocks and shares. But using somebody else's money, actually, it's not somebody else's money. It still belongs to the government. These are all state-owned enterprises. Mm. Okay, then uh, it uh, it sorts uh, it uh, in a, in a sense it sorts out that particular problem. We need some more money. Where are we going to get it? It's not going to be new money, but it is our money in any case. So we'll go ahead with that. Louisa, what do, what do you make of this uh, this scheme to, to deploy money from offshore accounts of Chinese state-owned enterprises to go and buy mainland shares? Um, okay. First of all, uh, we're still waiting for the news to be confirmed. And if it's going to be implemented, I think one of the most um, uh, on top of my head is basically a lot of the investor will benchmark um, this reported situation with what happened back in 2016. Back then, the rescue package was amounted to around 1.3 trillion RMB. And um, I mean, looking at this round, the reported uh, rescue package will be more than truly 2 trillion or maybe 2.3 trillion RMB. And if it does get implemented. What does it mean when we look at the overall average daily trading value of the AMB shares market? It does represent like more than three times of the average daily turnover. Um, so what it means that from a size perspective, it, it, it does seem that it, it will be uh, significant and compared with the 2016 rescue package, um, the size is also larger because back then the 1.3 trillion um, uh, stabilization package represents probably about one times of the average daily turnover of the market back then. But then let's take a step back. Uh, solely on the stabilization package uh, probably will not do the reversal like what we saw back in 2016. Now, um, just to recap, the MSCI China index was down about 13% during the similar period of time back in 2016. The market did not bottom immediately when this stabilization package was launched or when they start buying. But then um, it was through a more holistic package because back then they were not just buying on the A shares, like what is now currently being widely reported by the media. Back then there was a whole lot of other things, for instance, like IPO suspension, increase of margin financing, um, so on and so forth. And then more importantly, uh, it's um, the GDP deflator also showing signs of um, going to an end in approaching the end of first quarter um, 2016. So then the 
um, market back then bought some in February. So I think this time around, I would say if this stabilization package does um, turn out to be confirmed and implemented, it will be a good start. But this alone probably will not uh, do the trick. Uh, it will be positive for the market sentiment and that could support a trading rebound. But then for a more sustainable rallies like what we saw back in 2016, probably we'll need to, uh, like what I've just mentioned, a more holistic package um, addressing investor concerns in terms of policies and also more importantly, corporate earnings um, growth outlook. So in short, you, you think this is not going to work other than maybe create a short-term rebound, but you don't think in the long term this is going to cause um, a, a, a sustainable rally in stocks? I would say it will be a good start, but we need to have more follow-through. Mm. If it's just standalone, then probably the, 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 the meshes um, may not be holistic enough because right now, um, a good number of fundamental issues need to be addressed, like real estate market, debt restructuring, deflation, and so on. Yeah, Andrew, but what, it's a good start. Yeah, and Andrew, what what are your thoughts? Maybe also you can, Andrew, help me understand why does the market need um, a rescue package? Yes, it's been going down, but it hasn't been crashing, has it? It hasn't been going down in a disorderly fashion. It's, yes, it's been a, a steady decline, but it's been fairly orderly. Why do we need to rescue the market? Well, I, I suspect because the market has been going down. And if somebody asks why has it been going down for a year plus now, the performance was not uh, drastically bad. I mean, there are quite a lot of other markets that did uh, significantly worse. But the continuous, continuing murmuring hum behind all this was that the Chinese economy is in a much poorer state than we collectively think it is, or perhaps that the authorities themselves allow us to think it is. There was the issue of the property sector. There was the issue of the loans by the local authorities. And also there was uh, the overall political doubts and uncertainties over the centralization of the power of the authorities. So in other words, all these things, if you take them together, it was something that uh, sits very, very uneasily with the way in which the Chinese authorities would like to project the overall performance of the economy, and in particular, the performance of the market. They are hardly likely to come up and say, yes, people are worried because the Chinese model may not work. Yes, the economy is uh, in a poorer shape than people think it is, despite the fact it just grew by over 5%. And I don't think anybody uh, questioned the validity of that 5%. In other words, it is a real number. Mm. Whether it reflects the reality of the economy, it's an altogether different issue. But uh, this is the same question could be asked for any GDP growth or any other economy. Okay, so let's not go back to again that the Chinese are cooking their numbers. They're not. Okay, so they did quite well. But uh, obviously, even with a much better performance on GDP, the stock market continues to, to, to be doing poorly. And that bothered them a great deal. So you're absolutely right. There was not a real reason that it should be rescued any more, in fact, than the Hong Kong authorities should rescue the Hansen Index after it has fallen for nearly three years mm. in a row. Mm. Okay, I mean, but is that a bad thing? The answer is, is no. If you are having higher interest rates and you have an economy that also has certain ailments not dissimilar to those of China, and that is the issue of confidence, the issue of the 
viability of Hong Kong as an international financial center. I mean, you know all the usual stuff, all the usual suspects. Mm-hmm. So I am always at loss of how to quantify if somebody comes and tells me, hmm, you know, I don't like what is going on politically in China. I'll say, okay, fair enough. In how many basis points do you translate that? And nobody will ever give an answer. <laughs> you follow me? Okay. Mm. But, and, and, but all the reasons that you cite there are all actually perfectly valid reasons as to why the market is going down. Maybe people don't like it or don't think it's right or don't think it's fair, but nevertheless, some people do. And, um, you know, it's not inexplicable as to why the market is, is going down. Okay, either. I'm, not, I'm not telling you anything to which I'm privy of, privy of, or for that matter, I have severe problems about the Chinese economy. No, I don't. Okay, I do have severe problems with some of the indexes, some parts of the economy. I keep going back again over and over and over again. The index of the 70 uh, big and small cities in China and their first, this is sort of their first hand, new property sector uh, prices that has been going down now, not going down, it has been negative, it has been shrinking for 20 months. I mean, this this tells you, this this possibly tells you a great deal else mm-hmm. of what is going on. And the Chinese are not hiding it. They never said everything is fine. And now, actually, it's even more interesting. And you, you were one of the first ones to announce that. They brought back the unemployment rate of uh, a particular important sector of the economy, and that is the, the younger sector of the economy, including students. Although in the case of students, we still are not very clear as to what is the unemployment rate. And that was always bad news, and they never tried to hide it. Mm. So, okay, no, but at least, yeah. Louisa, where, where do we go from here? From uh, an investment perspective, what do you recommend uh, fund managers, uh, retail investors do? We saw at one point this week uh, the, the value of Indian uh, shares overtake those of um, Hong Kong. The value of uh, shares listed on in- Indian exchanges reached $4.33 trillion, um, overtook um, Hong Kong's valuation of $4.29 trillion on Monday. Um, where do we go from here? Um, okay, thank you, Peter. I think one of the things that um, institutional investors will focus on, not just earnings, but also in return on equities. So if you compare the returns on equities of India versus um, not just Hong Kong and China, but the rest of the region, it does stand out. And that's also explaining why it support the relatively higher valuation, uh, both in terms of uh, price to earnings and price to book as well. Um, going back to um, Hong Kong and China, I think like what I've mentioned, uh, what we have seen like the reported stabilization package, this um, uh, reserve requirement ratio cut is a good start, uh, but we need more follow through. Um, so in the near term, um, in light of our expectation of the Fed rate cuts, we do see that um, new plays will get back into focus uh, because of the expectation of the U.S. Fed fund raise to coming down. Um, so I think this is one of the um, subsectors uh, that investor can position amid of this uh, volatility in the market and uh, especially uh, waiting to see whether there will be more more follow through um, matches uh, that goes hand in hand together with what has been mentioned or reported so far. Uh, the second uh, investment uh, themes that we have highlighted is uh, because we expect the Chinese economy is going to have a bumpy and recovery, bumpy and gradual recovery. 
So we do um, see that market leaders in various industry will be able to gain market share on the back of this. And within this, we particularly uh, focus on those that could ride on the theme like consumption downgrade and those that have sizable overseas revenue exposure to cushion this volatility. So as and when we are approaching the result season where we have the earnings downgrade adjustment work its way out and also when have more clear guidance for the 2024, um, this could be a good time to accumulate some of the market leaders at a relatively uh, better valuation uh, settings. And then from a more global perspective, we do see that generative AI, which encompasses many of the uh, players, not just in Hong Kong, China, or even uh, Taiwan, but also in the developed markets, because we do see this as a multi-year themes. And it's not just uh, having impact on the hardware, which has played out really well um, last year, for instance, like the semiconductors. But um, in terms of data and more importantly, applications, uh, which we do see that um, probably still at an early stage. Okay. Andrew, one thing that strikes me about all this meddling uh, that's going on in the markets at the moment, restricting short selling, stopping fund managers from selling, is um, that one of the big victims of this is the fund management industry itself on the mainland, isn't it? This is disastrous for them because they're being forced to uh, stop their clients from selling, or if their clients do sell, they uh, they can't. Uh, they're not allowed. They're being forced to issue new products that they don't want to, and they're not allowed to sell products that clients uh, want, which are linked to overseas. Um, <clears throat> Excuse me, markets. This isn't really very good for the development of the fund management industry on the mainland, is it? Uh, on first side, yes. On the second side, uh, it is part and parcel of. Uh, the toolbox available to Chinese policymakers, and that is uh, direct control of individual markets, is uh, is part of the cost. Shouldn't surprise anybody. They have done it in the past, and they will do it uh, in the future. And uh, you know, I don't want to go back and scratch the old wounds. Remember the big interference two and a half years ago on the on the tech side and uh, on the social media side and uh, on the private tutor inside, yes, they can and they will. And uh, it is unfortunate, but uh, that's the way the cookie crumbles. So I, I look at it and uh, say, oh, but, but on the other hand, should anything really dramatic was to happen to the financial markets, the state has a formidable uh, amount of resources and of money to come to its rescue uh, without uh, unduly harming overall the economy. In other words, there are, there are two things here involved. Yes, they do interfere. And yes, if they need to interfere massively, they can, whereas a lot of other countries cannot. And also, they run a fairly clean house. But the issue of the property sector, uh, if I was to begin to count all their mishaps, they are not all that colossal, and they are not all that important. And they will always turn around and say, for 20 years, the economy has been growing at an average rate of 10%. We're not doing too badly, despite the fact that every now and then we grab the wheel and we yank it sharply either to the right or to the left. 
Mm. I, I suppose the, the, the thing, I mean, to be fair, it's not just China that does it, does it? There have been other big markets around the world that have meddled in their, their, their stock markets when it's suited them. But in the, in the longer term, it, it doesn't help determine the real price of assets, does it? And, and it seems to me that it just ultimately reduces market liquidity. This is all, the, all this meddling and banning of short selling and stopping people from selling um, doesn't actually help the market in the end. Well, in in a way, this will be this will begin in the fullness of time as uh, capital controls, as will as I'm not saying they will as they will inevitably will have to be lifted and made much easier in China. Then this kind of direct, uh, let's call it meddling, will become more and more difficult, if not impossible. Mm-hmm. So I do believe that uh, the freedom of the markets is uh, one way in which. It avoids the policymakers of getting a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, climbing too much of a hobby horse or hitting a very high note unnecessarily. Louisa, let's have a final thoughts from from you on on all of this. I mean, obviously, it's been a difficult year so far for um, the the China markets, and as I say, with all this meddling in the markets, it doesn't make it easy, really, does it, to work out what the real price of um, of shares could be? Are, are you hopeful that maybe um, at some point we're going to move to a little bit of a freer market in China? Um, I, I think the major issues that uh, investors will look at is the valuation parameters. But like what I've mentioned, um, the most often uh, being referred to will be the price earnings multiples whether and compare that to where the 12 level or the lower end of the trading range. But then um, let me highlight that my my major um, concern from a fundamental perspective is the earnings growth, which we do see at the current level that's still downside risk. So we do see that that could be a bit of volatility uh, from now till the uh, result season. Um, i.e. during the first quarter. Unless there will be a major liquidity put, uh, we have just started to see that. And whether that would um, help to uh, change the confidence of investors regarding government policy, uh, regarding growth outlook, um, I, I think it, let's, it will have to wait and see. But one thing um, that I uh, would like to highlight is that um, the central government has been reluctant to take on more leverage. I mean, if you look at the central government debt to GDP ratio, it was like 21% in last year. Uh, when you compared with obviously um, many of the countries around the world, uh, it definitely have more room to leverage up. So, um, what, if, if we does see, if we do see this happen, that will definitely uh, be a, be one of the. Uh, a positive sign to watch out for. And secondly, again, um, real estate market uh, transaction data is another important uh, data that we are focusing on. So once we have um, earnings in a more realistic um, uh, outlook, then I do believe that according with all these, if the holistic package is coming out, um, that could be uh, getting more uh, interest back to this market again. Okay. Well, thank you both very much for your thoughts there. You heard Louisa Fock, who is China Equity Strategist at Bank of Singapore, Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory. I'm joined now by Ross Feingold, who is Director of Research at Cyrus Consulting in Taiwan. Morning, Ross. 
Good morning. So we had a fairly decisive outcome, didn't we, for the uh, the Republican uh, primary in New Hampshire. 97% of the votes counted now, and it looks like uh, Mr. Trump has got about an 11-point lead over uh, Nikki Haley with about 55% of the vote. Is it all over, or is there still hope uh, for, for Mrs. Haley? Uh, very, very little hope. Look, she could stay in this nominating uh, contest as long as she wants, but if she keeps finishing second, it's it's mathematically impossible for her to accumulate enough delegates to finish ahead of former President Trump. So, you know, just looking at the obvious factors as well, that a lot of the upcoming states, she doesn't poll well, a uh, very conservative uh, vote, base of Republican voters, you know, that's also working against her. So she could stay in, but uh, the math is against her and it would take a miracle for her at this point to win the win the nomination. I mean, she polls quite well amongst independents, doesn't she? And, and also the well-educated in the Republican Party. Um, but uh, it, it's elsewhere where Donald Trump appears to, uh, to clean up. Yeah, well, the, the likely Republican voter is not just the two demographics that you mentioned. It's it's mm-hmm. a broader demographic, uh, blue collar workers, some of them who are not university educated, for example. Uh, and again, the polls polls just don't have her ahead in in the upcoming states. So uh, she could keep finishing second, but she wouldn't win the the nomination that way. Is is there a warning there for for Mr. Trump's general election prospects? I mean, she won the independence very. Um, substantially, 61% to 37%. Is that maybe um, where um, it's Donald Trump's Achilles heel when it comes to the general election? Some analysts have made that point in the past uh, few hours after the New Hampshire primary. I I think it's a little bit too early to make that conclusion. And also, plenty of polls have uh, Trump and Biden uh, either neck and neck or they have uh, Trump ahead. Uh, And those are polls that actually uh, are are meant to uh, poll a broad broad, uh, base of of likely voters. So that would include people beyond the more limited, uh, highly educated urban dwellers, uh, for example. So as of now, it still looks like it's going to be an extremely close election between Trump and Biden. And it's going to come down to those swing states, just like it did in 2016 and 2020. I mean, what is clear is that the Republican Party, it's Donald Trump's party now, isn't it? There's no question of a doubt about this anymore. Absolutely. Uh, the, the base as as they're often called, is nearly unanimous, frankly, in its support of, of former President Trump, as is a lot of Republican office holders, both at the local level or in Congress. We see a lot of Republicans now racing to endorse Trump if they hadn't endorsed him earlier in the primary process. So, yeah, the Republican Party uh, at the moment is the party of Trump. So back in 2016, a lot of people were surprised by the Trump victory. Uh, Businesses were taken by surprise. Foreign governments were as well. Are they better prepared now? Are US businesses um, bracing for, for, for Trump version two? That's a great question. The answer is probably no. I, I think the uh, business world just doesn't fully take into account political risk until it's too late or until events have already uh, transpired. Uh, and then business tends to react uh, to that. Uh, you know, If they want to hedge their bets, then they would donate money to Trump as well, I suppose. Uh, but when it comes to what Trump is actually going to do, uh, even if we, we could say for certain he's actually going to do it, there's not much you could do to prevent that, uh, you know, uh, to, to 
prepare for that. I guess uh, you know if he's going to raise tariffs on Chinese goods, you could try and uh, change your su- supply line further. Although many companies already started to do that when the trade war began, followed by COVID disruptions in China. Um, but but uh, what he's going to do on domestic policy, uh, you know, we, we could have some ideas what he'll do or what his team will do that could affect the business world. But uh, it, it's difficult to uh, prepare with specificity. Uh, you know, if if they change rules about uh, work workplace safety in favor of employers, if it's not something employers need to prepare for, they'll, they'll just look forward to something like that. Uh, other things you know, the, will change the environment, like uh, for diversity, equity, and inclusion, which has come under attack, we'll have a government that says, yeah, it's fine. Business doesn't need to train for these kinds of things. So again, there's some things that the corporate world will probably welcome, actually. But it's going to be even worse, isn't it, than just uh, more t- uh, tariffs on China. He's talking about a, a t- 10% tariff across the board on every single import that comes into the, the US. I mean, if he does that, that's going to affect every single business in every single sector, isn't it? It's going to be quite uh, quite draconian, quite drastic. Yeah, we don't know if he'll actually implement that one. That might just be campaign trail uh, puffery uh, and it plays well with some of the, the the audiences that he's been speaking to in, in Iowa or New Hampshire. Uh, but uh, yeah, companies could try and uh, domesticate, uh, reshore their supply line now, but it's kind of, I mean, we know from recent experience that that's really uh, easier said than done. Is he um, is he building up um, his relationships with businesses or is he not too bothered at the moment? He's just going to go out there and do what he's going to do. I, I don't think he's really building it up. Uh, in 2020, there were a few notable uh, business leaders who were really outspoken in their support for President Trump. Uh, but uh, I don't think... Uh, you know, the Davos crowd, you know, American business leaders who were at Davos uh, last week, for example, I, I don't think that people like that are lining up to support Donald Trump, uh, at least not doing so publicly. Mm. The other thing is he is a tax cutting guy, isn't he? We saw that in his first presidency and he has no qualms about increasing debt uh, to do that. The, the debt burden soared under his, uh, under his presidency to pay for that. The problem is he got away with it the first time around, but this time, this is going to be much more inflationary. This could, this could cause some problems for the Fed and for uh, the U.S. economy, couldn't it? Yeah, keeping in mind he had unified government his first time around, you know, at least in his first two years. So he had Republican control of the House and of the Senate, and it was possible to get that tax legislation through Congress in, at the end of his first, towards the end of his first year uh, in, in, in late 2017. Uh, I, at least now, uh, the Democrats have a good a chance of, uh, of keeping control of, of the Senate and or losing control of the Senate, but winning back the House. Uh, it just seems like it will be very difficult to get a massive tax cut package through the next Congress. Uh, if Even if Trump is the president, it just seems really unlikely or this early on to think that there'd be a scenario where he could get this kind of tax bill, tax cut bill through Congress again. And what about uh, Asian governments? How are they likely to react to this? I mean, Joe Biden spent a lot of time, hasn't he, building up relations with allies in this region, with Japan, with South Korea, uh, with Australia, with the Philippines. Is that all going to be in jeopardy under a Trump presidency? 
Uh, probably not in jeopardy, but there'll be some change in focus. You know, for example, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, uh, you know, just like Trump left the TPP at the time it was called, uh, he might you know, walk away from the IPEF. Uh, he might put more pressure on Korea and Japan uh, to spend even more on their own own defense. Uh, but some of the relationships, uh, I think the, the, at the working level, they'll withstand uh, some of the chaos that inevitably will come with the Trump presidency. Uh, the, the area that's probably got to really have a rethink is Europe, isn't it? It's really got to think about taking defence matters, looking after Ukraine into its own hands, because there's no guarantee that Donald Trump is going to be there behind them. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, Trump clearly had uh, a lot of time for uh, displeasure, to put it lightly, <laughs> with European leaders during his first term, whether that was uh, Germany or France or, or Italy. Uh, I, I think we'll see more of that. And it also it just shows that uh, we talk a lot about uh, 21st century being the Asian century, but ultimately the United States president does wind up spending a lot of his foreign policy time on either Europe or the Middle East. And I think it's likely that that's going to happen again to whoever is the next U.S. president. And what do you think about China? How is President Xi Jinping, how is President, uh, how is China likely to view a second Trump presidency? Well, if you're Xi Jinping, you take some solace in the fact that that President Trump periodically says very nice things about Xi Jinping, right? He says, you know, we're, we're friends. He's a, she is a strong leader. We got along great. Uh, the same kind of rhetoric that Trump sometimes says about a, a group of leaders that includes uh, Kim Jong-un and, and Vladimir Putin as well. Uh, but uh, you know, they have the, the, the experience of the first term and, you know, they know that there could be more trade disruptions. Uh, they know that uh, tariffs might go up uh, again. Uh, they also know that there's potential for one-on-one -on -one deals like the uh, uh, so-called phase one trade deal that China and the United States reached in the beginning of January, 2020. Uh, but I think for what China needs to be more concerned about is not Donald Trump. I, I think it's the foreign policy team that Trump uh, builds of you know, his political appointees uh, are clearly going to be China hawks in, in more ways uh, than, than just President Trump himself. I think you know, he's going to have a group of foreign policy officials who passionately feel the U.S.-China relationship needs to be further recalibrated. And what about for Taiwan? What's, uh, what, what's the implications for Taiwan? Well, Taiwan was pretty happy with the first Trump administration, the, the approval of significant weapons sales, the rhetoric and actions with regard to to the mainland. Uh, so although they denied it at the time, it was clear in 2020 that the Tsai Ing-wen administration definitely preferred that Trump beat Biden. And I think it's fair to say that the Lai Qingde administration, which will take office in May after Lai won the recent election, uh, they're also, they'll deny it, but clearly they're going to favor a Trump administration over a second Biden administration. Okay, Ross, thank you very much indeed for your insights. That's Ross Feingold, Director of Research at Cyrus Consulting over in Taiwan. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. Do please take a look at my newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com for more information on developments during the Asian Trading Day. I'll be back tomorrow with the final Money Talk of the week when I'll be joined by Francis Lun, the CEO of Geo Securities, and James Wong, Chief Executive Officer at Gathasia Securities. 
Later in the show, I talk with Tony Nash, founder of Complete Intelligence. Have a great day. Money Talk 